The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kayfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. My earliest recollections were at one point seeing him on the news. And he was in jail because somebody had gotten killed. That's when the first time I realized, oh, there's something going on here besides work. All right, back with another kayfabe. You're back, I'm back. We're both here, so we might as well do something for the next hour or so, right? Both made out of bed, both alive. So let's do something, for God's sakes. Let's do a podcast. Listen, whatever we do here, just know, just know that you can be a patron of it at patreon.com slash podcast. Let me just say that real quick up front for all the critics. Everybody's got a everybody's got a fucking mouth. This generation's unbelievable. This 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 technological generation. It allows wonderful things like this podcast. Kayfabe commentaries, my lauded company, my band celebrated the world over. Could not have existed twenty five years ago with gatekeepers. People go, what the fuck is this? Where are we airing this dumb shit? Like Jerry Lawler said to me when I called him and I pitched the concept of guest booker. We were just getting started. And um, we'd shot You Shoot Missy Hyatt. And she said, uh, oh, you got to get King for that uh, guest booker thing you do. I said, you damn right we do. And she said, here's his home number. Call me. I call him. I woke him up <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon. And we got a good talk for about a half hour, but much of the half hour was me trying to explain what Guest Booker was as Jerry went, who the fuck would watch that? Are you kidding me? People watch that shit? And so, you know, but hey, listen, it couldn't have existed without this uh, without this day and age. And you know what? You charge people for content. You're the devil. You give it to them for free and say, hey, become a patron so we can keep giving it to you for free. You're still the devil. So we press on. Despite, we had a little two-week hiatus there. We had the holidays. We had Christmas, New Year's. I try not to be too specific with time periods because you might be listening to this in a, uh, a repeat capacity. Rerun. I don't know what you youngsters call it. We used to call it the reruns when it's not the first run. But uh, it might be six months from now you're listening to this for the first time. What, am I standing here talking about Christmas? What the fuck? But for those of you who are the diehards that join me every week, we needed a couple of weeks off there to get through the holidays. And I just, I really enjoyed not talking to you fucking people for two weeks. I'll be honest. Oh, but here I am in my, in my citadel of self-examination, handcuffed to this microphone, bringing you content. You know, things, I, I'm, I'm talking about things couldn't exist like 25 years ago. Kayfabe couldn't exist 25 years ago. And it's true, it couldn't have. We couldn't have brought you the shoot interview product, whether it be streaming or DVD or however you used to get it. We couldn't have done that a long time ago. But something we did do, I say we, meaning me and Anthony and a sound guy named Joe who owned a, a sound studio in his house who I went to college with, uh, we were contacted by a friend who had a connection to Ed Lucas of the New York Yankees. He was a sports writer who was blind. Actually a very interesting story, but that's for another time. And every year they had a celebrity charity golf tournament for their uh, for their school of the blind here in New Jersey. And so they wanted a commemorative video of the day out on the golf course and then the banquet at night where they gave awards and you know, all the sports stars came up to speak. So they wanted someone who could put together an interesting and entertaining video that they could use thereafter. So it was an annual event. I guess the people that they had the first time was terrible. So my friend Chris was like, hey, listen, my dad needs this thing. And, you know, you guys are always shooting things. Uh, you know, why don't you go try this? So I was like, great, great opportunity. I grabbed Anthony. I said, listen, you know, get your camera, get your big VHS camera and, uh, Let's go try to cobble this together. We weren't a production company. I mean, I was in film school, so I was shooting things, and I was doing short films on film. But, you know, Chris knew that I, I knew it, so we had to 
kind of cobble this thing together and find a way to edit it. There was no computer editing software, really. There was this, like, ghetto shareware program. I'm talking about around 95, uh, 1995. There was this program that Anthony found that he was like, yeah, I could cut this together. And so I was like, all right, well, let's let's give it a shot. Maybe we, maybe we can shoot this thing. So we go out. We did this for two years, two consecutive years. We did the... Uh, the commemorative video for the Phil Rizzuto Celebrity Golf Classic. And um, oh, we had all these we had all these stars. So I said, give me the list of the celebrities that are going to be there. And so I could put together interviews for these people. We wanted to do as they came in and checked in and started their day. We wanted them to be brought to us first, sat down so that they'd feel it was a requirement. Because me chasing Yogi Berra around the golf course all day, you know, we want him to check in, walk in, grab a coffee, and sit down with us for 15 minutes. That would be kind of the check-in process. It'd feel like it was part of the deal. So we did that. And, you know, as I think about this, I guess this was a precursor to kayfabe commentaries and, and what we do there. And, you know, uh, Anthony's doing the technical side. He's behind the camera, and I'm coming up with these questions. So we have to prepare questions for... Mad Dog Chris Russo, who was a New York uh, sports radio personality, and Dick Vitale, the uh, basketball announcer, Gary Carter, the uh, legendary Mets catcher, Yogi Berra was there. Oh. I mentioned this in an earlier podcast because um, uh, Howdy Doody, uh, Captain, B- oh, Jesus Christ, his name's escaping me, but uh, say, kids, what time is it? He was there uh, as part of this, and... Uh, so it was a, a range of people that I had to prepare questions for. And I was not versed in all of their lives and everything, everything they, they'd done. So I was coming at this just from the angle of the things that interested me. So I get Chris Russo, and I guess he's ready to talk about the upcoming, uh, upcoming baseball season, uh, football season, uh, whatever he's ready to talk about. And I wanted to talk about the voiceover he did for the bad lieutenant. With Harvey Keitel. You ever see The Bad Lieutenant? Another one where Harvey feels compelled to take his clothes off. To, to the enjoyment of no one. And But that's what I wanted to talk about. So that's what I ended up talking to him about. I was talking about there was a there was a hockey player who had just been on Howard Stern that weekend was and was was wild talking about his exploits in the bedrooms after the hockey games. That's what I talked to him about. This is a commemorative video for a fucking school for blind kids. I'm not I'm not even thinking ahead of, of what I'm going to be cutting together and giving these people. But I'm saying what interests me? What is interesting to me right now? What am I going to sit and talk to uh, Yogi Berra about? What the hell is Yogi Berra? I mean, I know there's statistics I should be talking about that everybody talks to him about. Phil Rizzuto, I know I'm supposed to sit there and talk to him endlessly about. But you know what? I had to talk about what interested me. I, this, this, the internet was fairly new. This is '95. It was new to me, anyway. I know some dick in their basement is going to be like, "Oh, the internet was actually relevant." Well, it's 1983. I, I listen. That's when I got it. Okay, mid '90s. So, and you know, and the proliferation of information on the web was not what it is today. So I, I was not ready to get fifty stuff on fifty celebrities. I talked to him about what I knew. I guess that was the precursor to kayfabe commentaries. Just talk about what you know. We do research for that, and Anthony hands me a copious amount of research, but eventually, eventually, with the talent, somewhere in the interview, I start talking to them. There's times I don't, I guess, like in a timeline with you know, one of the more recent talent. I don't know. But I guess, yeah, I guess even there it happens. Eventually you start talking to the person. It's you, the person. And the guest, the person. And you're talking about whatever that common ground is, whatever that middle, whatever that intersection is in your lives. Even if it's Harvey Keitel's cock. All right, at this time where horror movies based on books are coming back, It, the popularity of It, remake of Pet Cemetery, all these Netflix series based on thrillers, great new supernatural horror novel out there called Transfer by the brilliant author of fiction and nonfiction, Sean Oliver, yours truly, Transfer. 
the book reads a discovery called An Exceptionally Thrilling Story that builds up with a solid pace and keeps the reader immersed and emotionally invested. A four-year-old has just died in the classroom. A shocked community turns its attention to the troubled urban school for answers, and there seem to be none coming. School guidance counselor Lane Waterman, busy handling the school's grief, notices students had been transferring out of PS12 at an unusually high rate for months. Their destinations seem random, the reasons unknown. What is first suspected to be a bureaucratic conspiracy eventually reveals itself to be a far deeper and darker threat crawling through the community. Her investigation into the children's circumstances takes her far off course beyond school and into the belly of a deadly secret hidden in a forgotten urban wasteland. Can Lane put the lid on a spreading menace before the secret gets out? Turns out she's got some secrets of her own. The supernatural horror thriller will keep you guessing until the end. Step inside now. Transfer! A supernatural horror novel by Sean Oliver. Available at Amazon, on Kindle, on paperback. It's Transfer. For anyone who didn't read Hotel Scarface, which detailed the short but colorful life cycle of the Mutiny Club at the Hotel Mutiny in Miami's Coconut Grove, circa the late 70s, early 80s, we should explain who Monkey Morales was. Uh, The term colorful character wouldn't do him justice. Uh, The Mutiny Club was the, uh, the epicenter for South Florida's exploding cocaine smuggling trade and simply put, it was the playground for the kingpins, their hitmen, bodyguards, pro athletes, movie stars, recording artists, politicians. You might wonder what freak show, what circus big top would commingle all of those elements, and you'd be right to wonder that. You just haven't been to the mutiny. In that mix, one man, feared by many, curiously admired by others, stood out. Ricardo Morales, known as El Mono, or Monkey, uh, has etched himself in history with a host of monikers. Demolition and explosives expert, check. Hitman for hire, check. Murderer, check. Enforcer for Miami's top duo of cocaine lords, check. Uh, CIA operative for the United States government, check. Um, Confidential informant for Miami's local law enforcement, check. FBI informant, check. And one more crucial title, which brings us to today's podcast, Dad. Our guest is Ricardo Morales Jr. Ricardo, uh, we are all realizing our dads kind of suck now (laughs) after hearing all that. But, um, you know... What legacy am I leaving my kids, I wonder? It, you know, I've been in some movies, handful of books, this ridiculous podcast. Um, it makes us re-examine this. But thank you for coming on. Thank you for uh, offering to be uh, forthcoming with your life story and your life story with your dad. My pleasure, Sean. You know, it always fascinates me, The I guess because I'm a father, the... Um, that uh, concept of the father. I wrote a book about uh, fathers in professional wrestling back in the day, uh, which was a closed society um, back when they were trying to pass this off as real. And so they kind of had to keep some stuff hidden from the kids. But in talking to both children of professional wrestlers of the 70s and 80s and the workers, they never had to sit down and have the discussion. The kids always figured something out. So give me your early years, your impressions when you were figuring out, you know what? My dad does not go to the office like Johnny's down the street. What are you putting together? What are you starting to see? Yeah, well, when we're young, um, there's three of us. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And... I guess after like four or five years old, he's gone. He's rarely in the picture because he's always out doing his jobs and whatnot. So my earliest recollections were at one point seeing him on the news. And he was in jail because somebody had gotten killed. So that's when the first time I realized, oh, there's something going on here besides work. How old are you about at that time? 
I would say I'm 10 years old, okay. nine years old. And so then that makes you start thinking. Now we have other members of the family who were also into blowing up things. I have an uncle who ended up in jail for it. My dad had procured the explosives for him. So I knew other members of my family were blowing up things, fighting Castro. But I did not know where my dad was because they would never tell us. Now, we should point out a little a little timeline here. Uh, Ricardo Sr. Uh, was a was at first a member of Castro's secret police. Right. And mm-hmm. end of the 50s. Yeah, that's correct. He uh, when he was 20, he was recruited into the secret police uh, for Fidel Castro. He was supposed to be going out. Him and his brother, Rolando, were supposed to be undercover trying to find out who was being subversive towards Castro now from the Batista people. And he started those jobs, and that's when he figured, that's when he changed his mind. When he saw what they were doing, what Castro was doing to the people, and he was shifting to communism, then him and his brother went underground to try to be subversive as opposed to helping them. And he gets out and into Florida and like, early 60s, 62, 63? I think it's 60. He leaves in 60 or early 61. He uh, he escapes through the Brazilian embassy. He goes into the Brazilian embassy for hiding, and he gets out through the Brazilian embassy. They fly him out on an airplane, and his brother was flo- escaped through Paraguay. Uh, that's how they got out of the country. And they're, they're signed up to Operation 40, which Correct. is the CIA's... Um, assassin training program to get fidel basically right exactly they're the ones that did not go they were a separate unit from the ones that went to the bay of pigs Pigs, right those are totally separate units these people were being trained and were infiltrating clandestinely back into cuba to try to kill people assassinate people find out what's going on in there so had he done actual missions back to cuba or was it only training Oh, okay no no he did uh he did uh, the numbers, you know, are hard to are hard to put, but he did over a hundred incursions back into Cuba, and he did some personal ones too. There's trips that he took into Cuba, stole a helicopter, and photographed his family cemetery where his parents were buried, oh. so he'd have those pictures. So he would just he went so many times, but that was he was going back with assassination targets, places to blow up, and try to create an insurgency, which never never came about. Right, this is canceled under President Johnson, right after right. Kennedy gets assassinated. Well, it's canceled. the The uh, CIA handlers canceled them and sent them to the Congo. Right, the we, Belgian Congo, where he. I mean, he. I PTSD, right from from all accounts that I've read, um, he was greatly affected by the carnage that he was sent there to carry out. Yes. Yeah, he was. He was wounded there. He took a shot to, he, close to his spine during an incursion to save some um, villagers that were and Europeans that were in the Congo. They sent that uh, troop in, and he was the machine gunner on the back of the Jeep. He got struck by a bullet, and they made it all out. They all got out, and that's where this is. What I'm going to give you a little insight on the monkey name. Oh, so good. When when they come back. Some of the people that have, they've rescued are children, and they're African-American children and white children. And he's holding one of the black children in his arms. And one of his fellow guys looks, hey, there goes the monkey. Because he's holding a little black person in his arm. That's, there was a, wow. And they, from there on, the monkey, monkey, monkey stood because he had rescued you know, some people. And he looked like he was holding what they said in a racist term back then. You know? Yeah. It, it was like a, little, was a little girl, right? Wasn't it a little girl? Yes, I believe it was a little girl. But he was holding a little, and they they started calling him monkey from then on. Do you think that this type of uh, warfare um, that he's indoctrinated into does that do something to the psyche to make you become so cold as to carry out? these missions we'll talk about some of them later like blowing up a goddamn airliner yeah um you've got to be able to detach yourself from the collateral damage that you're doing 
because of a greater good. Was he that kind of person from childhood, from birth, do you think, or had all of this shit that he did for Castro and then later did for our government, did that instill that distance and that coldness? Yeah, I think when when he first comes and becomes starts to become training, it's all focused on Cuba. He just wants to be anti-communist. He wants to overthrow. But then when he realizes there is no going back to Cuba, the Americans have left us. They're not going to go back. Then he goes in. He's doing the CIA training. And there is where I believe something clicks where he think where he this is me. This is what I want to do with my life. I want to go after the bad guy. But the bad guy is figurative, depending on who's looking at the bad guy. So the CIA sends you to kill somebody in South America, you kill them. But could be that that person ended up being on the right side, wrong side. Nobody knows. But you lose at that point. I think you lose all your sense of wrong and right. And mission is mission. Right. And the more you do it, the colder you get. A soldier. uh, The definition of a soldier. Yeah, exactly. You're born in what, 63? 63. Okay, now he comes back. uh, He's in Miami. um, By 65, he's he's taking jobs here as uh, an explosive expert for hire, right? Correct. But he's picking and choosing his victims. So, like... The person hiring him to do the job, he would determine whether that person needed to die or not because he knew more from being in the CIA than the person putting the hit on. So he would create some bombs that would explode, some that would half explode. And if you were a bad guy, the bomb exploded. Like there was one in particular, like there was some mobster who had some Playboy bunny wife that another mobster wanted. Yeah. And uh, I think for this one, your dad had to like scuba dive because it was a, mm-hmm. a waterfront house, right? Correct. And uh, see, that detonated, but because there were kids in the house, there were no casualties, right? That's what you're talking about? Exactly. You remember in the movies, right, I, I'm going to bring up the Scarface section where they're in New York and they're about to blow up the United Nations guy and the kids get in the car. You and kill you. I'm not going to kill a kid. I'm not going to kill no kids. <laughs> That's right. Look at you now, you cockroach. <laughs> yeah. That's. My dad did have that. He was not going to blow up a car full of kids. If there were Cuban kids of family members, you know, normal people. Now with the airliner, that's a different story. Right. We'll that. That, yeah. yeah, we will. We will. Well, I mean, we're here. So, well, uh, Let's so, go for it. so the Cuban airliner, I think it was carrying 70 some odd people, right? 73 is what my dad said. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> now, now that mission was concocted by whom okay so he is in venezuela when this mission starts he is at that point he is the he's the the running the airports secret police of venezuela so that operation is sponsored by a government i can't tell you which government he never told me which Mm -hmm. government so they procure the explosives based on a raid that happens in venezuela they get the explosive. They create the bomb, and then he passes the bomb on to the Venezuelans that were working for him, which is Bosch and the other gentlemen that were there. And then eventually that bomb makes its way onto the airplane, and the airliner blows up uh, La Cubana airliner with 30, 73 people on board. Did he know uh, exactly what was going down, or was he just told? Yes. No, no. He knows. There's, a, there's plenty of... Uh, um, depositions and interrogations that occurred in court right. that are listed. And, and there was even a news uh, reporter from Miami who interviewed him regarding the airliner explosion. And he readily admits that he was part of the operation to put the bomb on the airplane. And they, when they ask him why, 73 communists on board and they don't need to live any longer. So was he? Was that just him uh, reconciling this in his mind that they were definitely seventy three communists, no children, no no old ladies. He was unaware of children. He was aware that there were people that didn't work for the government. Let's say because the fencing team was on that airplane. It was a gold medal fencing team at the time. His explanation when the when he is interrogated regarding that part of it is 
the way I look at, they were all future Communist Party members. And these will no longer be future Communist Party members. Yeah, I mean, people may not understand. I, I have a history with the Cuban community because of where I grew up. It was probably about 80% when I was a kid. Um, and the just how i mean the, the the name castro was almost a pejorative a curse yeah um and just how passionately i remember having a conversation with my friend carlos when obama had opened up uh the country had opened up uh, yeah. a route into cuba and he was taught i said i was saying like well isn't it great now these people you know now they can make some damn money and uh, and he's like, yeah, you know, I feel that. He said, but you got to see my parents who, you know, they're probably in their 70s or whatever. They, they, they don't even want to fucking hear it yeah, because they're still back in 1960. Yeah. They've never left those. That generation's never left mentally. Right. They're still there. How did you feel about uh, opening some trade and, and getting some uh, tourism going down there? Yeah, I'm of the I'm of the. I'm of the mindset and generation where I believe 50 years of doing something stupid that doesn't arrive to a conclusion or help anybody is pretty stupid to continue to do. I'm of the send stuff over there, send people, send goods, yeah. send everything, because no matter what, some of it will trickle to the people. Right. So, I mean, look, and, the top of the food chain in any communist country, they're going to get what they, they're going to have right. it all. They're going to have it all. Right. But right. now you got a chance to get some shit to these people in the streets. They're yeah. living in squalor, so many of them. Even if it's even if it's a little bit, even if it's 20% of 100% you send them, it's right. 20% more than they're getting now. Exactly. And a taste of capitalism seems to inspire people. Yeah, you know? exactly. So the more they taste, maybe they'll do it on their own. Now, Monkey is responsible for about half, according to a lot of the research, by the way, comes from Robin Farzad's book, uh, Hotel Scar. I can't plug it enough. I had Robin on. And if you guys haven't read it yet, then you're not doing your homework that I signed. Um Half the bombings in the Miami Herald's uh, bombing box score, they do this thing, like, were his. Yes. And the ones that weren't his were probably somewhere along the lines his because he was the procurement guy for most of the explosives and whatnot in making the bombs. Did he have this shit, like, all around the house? Was no, he, was no. He didn't live at home with us. That's that, That's the, Once he went in full bore... He left. He would just come back and show up out of the blue. Where's your mom in all this? My mom My mom lives, well, we were all in Miami all the time. And then if, my mom currently lives in the country of Columbia. She left the country. No, but I meant um, like yeah. during this time. We were in Little Havana living in Miami. And she would. he would just appear out of nowhere. Like I was at football practice one time in like seventh grade. And I'm running laps. I run one lap and the next lap he's standing there and leaning next to his Red Cadillac Seville, which he always had. I'm like, whoa, out of the blue, just pops up. That's how he was. He would just show up. Was he warm? Um, did he express affection? He did. He was he was a loving guy. He loved his family. He loved his, uh, he had sisters and his brother, which he loved tremendously, nieces that he loved tremendously. And uh, he was a normal guy when you spoke to him in family situations, but he was monkey Morales everywhere else. Right. Did your mom, now when this stuff starts coming on the TV and you, and you see it and you realize, do you, do you yeah. go to her with concerns? Like, Oh my God, is this true? No, we didn't even have to ask. You could hear the conversations in the house between the grandparents and the parents and, and, uh, that you knew something was going on. I just couldn't understand why he would be in arrested and something and then walk out the next day because I hadn't put together the, well, he's CIA. They're not going to, he was charged with multiple murders and walked out of the courthouse like nothing had ever happened. Was George, was this George Bush's CIA? He was the, he was CIA. Yes. This was his, under his regime, under his yes. uh, watch. Okay. He was C he was CIA before he was vice, and then he was also yeah. drug enforcement. He was also the head of the that drug enforcement thing when they put the war on drugs together. The tres letras, right? The, uh, yes, the tres letras. Yeah. Um. So, so now, um, 
he uh, th- there are so many, there are a lot of myths. I, I guess you know there are some that are true and then some that aren't. I I, I read that he's able to like. He's a bit of a genius with, uh, with memorization. Memory. Yeah. Like he could memorize for the cops. He yes. could memorize like 35 license plates of all these people and just spit them out to the cops at any time. Yeah. He could memorize numbers like you wouldn't believe. So that made it real easy for him with uh, coordinates, GPS, all that stuff. You never found him with that. Usually you never found him with papers, having to see something never when they catch him or arrest him for anything like the local police. They never really found a lot on him, except for the one time at the Miami River where they found he had all the coordinates and and air channel numbers for CIA, DEA, FBI, so that they could get the dr- drugs in and out without any police catching them. He would have been a master running the uh, the bolita. He could have remembered everybody's numbers. Yes. He never would have yes. had to write it down for anybody. Yeah. That's that's what always would get them. They'd always have the paper with everybody's paper, names and numbers. Exactly. They should, yeah, no. the magician paper, flash paper, that's what they should have used, right? One yeah. match, it's gone yeah. in a half a second. Exactly. Um, uh, he, he does a hit in Little Havana where he puts like 17 rounds into some guy who lives. And he doesn't die. Atomico. We used to, if he had a nickname, Atomic. Yeah. How? Was, I'm going to say, I have no idea how the guy didn't die. He doesn't know how the guy didn't die. I will tell you, that was the only person my dad, he didn't fear him. He just didn't know how the hell am I going to kill him. He couldn't kill him after that. But it was a, it was like a running joke. The only guy monkey fears is this guy because he shot him 17 times and he didn't die. When I so, read, I see, I thought it was maybe like when you were talking about there's bombs that go off, bombs just to scare. Maybe the 17 shots was to scare <laughs> Atomico. One in the finger, one in the elbow, one in the shoulder, one in the yeah, ass. Yeah. No, but, it was everywhere, and uh, yeah, that was the that was a big one. What did Atomico yeah. do wrong? I have, you know what? He was probably just uh, on the wrong side. Oh, wrong of side. of a of a political thing, or that yeah. that was okay. I would say politically. Um, he uh, he is arrested in '68 when his prints are found on a bomb. Yes. Uh, this was the one. It was a uh, a company that was shipping goods, I think, to Cuba. Yeah. Yeah, that was like the times, like I said, my uncle, he was arrested for planting a bomb at an Air Canada office because Air Canada was doing business with Cuba still. So this is where you get into the brigade guys that are receiving bombs and planting them in businesses that have that are still doing business with Cuba. So that's where he gets they get those bombs. So apparently when he gives it, it doesn't blow up completely or whatever and they find a partial print of my dad's and so it's at this time that he i guess cuts a deal where like you said you see he's arrested and then you know he's walking around so he is able to cut a deal where he's going to give um he's going to infiltrate a a a terrorist ring right right he's gonna he's gonna do whatever he has to do if they want information on the brigades he'll give them some information but not all the information they need He's going to play both sides of the fence at this point to save his life. Well, he does that for 20 years after that. For 20 years, basically. that's correct. Um, yeah. he, uh, now, he, when does he finally like hook up with, when is he outside of the, um, you know, the, the Cuban exile thing and he's now exclusively like working for the Miami guys like Rudy Redbeard and uh, well, Carlene Casas. In between, in between that, after he leaves the Congo, he goes to Europe and he trains for, with the Israelis. So he receives Mossad training in Europe. So I have all these pictures of him all over Europe at all the training sites that he was doing. So he was doing training for the CIA and the Mossad to learn how to go after Nazis because then he goes Nazi hunting. That's right. Um, and this is all financed by us, right? Yes, this is all CIA-funded operations. The, the, all the mercenaries in the Congo, that was a, a CIA operation. And then after that, he's on the CIA payroll. The CIA is depositing paychecks into my mother's account. How do they pay- find him? How does it start? Well, I guess since they knew he had worked for Castro's espionage unit, when he arrives in Miami, they're looking for all these people. The CIA is looking to see who can we use. So then 
they start interviewing, they start talking to people. And at that point, they offer you a job. They wanted all these Cubans that they could get their hands on. Because remember, they're still thinking, we're going to go back. Yeah. So they find the ones they get, they start training them, and then you see which ones are good and which ones are bad. And that's how, that's how they, but they picked them up as soon as they were coming in. I, you know, when I was in high school, I, I would have I was a small guy. I was short. I, I would have loved to have been able to say, or just for people to know that my father was the monkey. <laughs> Nobody would have fucked with me ever. Did, did you find that people like you parted the Red Sea when you walked into a dance? Like nobody went near you? I tell you, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of problems in Miami when I was growing up. That is correct. A lot of people knew who I was and who my father was. That is correct. <laughs> what, what, a, what a gift. I mean, we're not glamorizing these things. The bombs were real. The funerals are real. Uh, but but God, if there's, a, if there's one damn thing that came out of it that's positive, Ricardo Jr. was able to never get picked on in high school. Your father, <laughs> ga- your father gave you that. He gave me that much. I'll tell you a quick little one. This is where I knew things were real. Uh, we went shopping. He took me shopping when I was about 13, 14. We went to the Omni Mall in Miami, which at the time was the premier mall in Miami. It had just opened. It was a beautiful place. And we went shopping, bought a bunch of clothes, whatnot. And we're walking back to the car. And as I approach the car, all I hear is a scream, stop. You have to check for a bomb. And we had to get under the car. And I'm under the car like if I knew how a bomb looked like at that point. Come on. He gets under there. Okay, it's clean. We get in. I was, you know, of course, I could have made a condo out of the bricks I was pooping at that time, but that's when I knew this is too much. This yeah, I think I probably, I, I would have told you, like, oh, I dropped a quarter. Stay here. I gotta, no, I, yeah, no. I got to look under the to know. He wanted me to know. Don't make that mistake again. That's good. Oh. Um, you mentioned the mall, and it brought to mind the, the Dadeland uh, shooting uh, right. at the. Uh, at that liquor store, which kind of like when that hit the press, uh, 79, I think, right? It was a little bit after, I think. I think it's after my dad dies. I'm, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's like a year after. But oh, when the be- Colombians, when the Colombians came in? Yeah, I think when the Dayland shooting occurs, it's 83, maybe, and my dad dies in 82. Oh, but okay. He'll be thought, off on I that. I thought it was before that. Okay. But I, I was going to ask you, like, Griselda Blanco and, and right. like that whole crew, did your dad have any dealings with the Colombians? No, nope, not at all. He was uh, dealing with Bolivians through Venezuela when he was the, the, the chief of the airport security of Venezuela. And uh, I know they were bringing in from Bolivia to, to the United States through Venezuela about a ton of coke per month. And then the money was going back. And the people that were running the coke, according to my father, and there's other stories that are, are neo-Nazis, and Nazis that have been hiding all those people that went to South America. So the people that were running Bolivia and stuff at that time, the drug, the drug people at the airports and in charge are Nazis, which he found out because he was nothing Nazis in South America. Could that be true? Yeah, I believe it's true. I've read it in multiple, in multiple uh, accounts from different reporters. And I just read some of it today. Um, in a book that I was reading that was written by his uh, personal lawyer at the end, Jerry Sanford, yeah, which, which uh, he was to be a state prosecutor, and then he went to become a private lawyer. And he has it in his book also about the neo-Nazis running the drugs uh, out of Bolivia. How does he get hooked up with the kingpins, uh, Carlene Casada and uh, Rudy Redbeard? Well, they're all friends. They all grew up in Miami together, and uh, he was friends with them and had things that he could offer them and they knew he would tell them they knew this is how things are going to go if this thing falls this way i'm going to flip on you and then when it comes time i'm going to not talk about you so nobody's going to go to jail because if you look at all those things very few people ever ended up going to jail right when the big trial happens Right. Where, where Monkey is going to be like the star witness and Correct. blow up the spot, no pun intended, f- uh, on everybody. He like he blows, he <laughs> b- blows it accidentally. He comes in, doesn't he? Give like the the uh, the salute from when he was working with the anti Castro regime. Yeah, it, to the all, defendants. It, yeah, they were all a team. 
So they knew that he was not actually going to testify against them. Because once he got behind closed doors with the prosecutors, all he would tell them was, I'm a CIA asset and I have lots of information. And if you guys want me to talk, I'm going to say everything I know. And immediately it would be like, shut that down. There's no way you can allow this person in open court to just start spewing information. So Casada and, and them, they knew that even though he was flipping. Yes, it's he... not a real flip. It's a team effort. If this happens, we do this. And then I'll take care of you on the other side. After he flips and Casada gets arrested, gets released, they're best friends. He's still back at Casada's house a month later, living at Casada and doing another drug deal. Mm-hmm. And they're they're back in business a month after they're all released. Would Monkey do the runs for the stuff, no. or, or was he just providing no. like intelligence and security yeah. for? Yeah, he was the intelligence guy. He was the one who was able to go to whoever he needed to go to, and ask for uh, radio code frequencies. Where is the patrols this month? Where can I come in? Where can I go out? Where can the and then he would give that information to them. And that's how they would bring it up. When you say coming and go out, you're talking about on boats or planes? Boats, planes, either way. Because a lot of it was either planes dropping it into the water or boats, and then the boats would bring it straight in. So he would have the information, which I gather he got from his CIA or his FBI handlers, that this is what I need, and they would give it to him. So when these guys would bring in like these huge scores, right, of, of, right. of Coke, would it like they would cut it and then just the i mean they did they deal in any of themselves or were they nope. just giving it to street yeah. handlers basically they're the wholesalers right yeah they would just it would just be brought in and then the other people that received it would distribute it he was not involved in the day-to-day selling and distribution of anything so that's where the money is at the top of the chain you you just you take the risk to bring it in you're running international waters but you get it in and you just yeah, it's he was a, just a yeah. He was just the the, the planner. He's right. the planner, the plan, execute the plan. But at the same time, he is also after that goes to the street. They know FBI knows, CIA knows, local police know where those drugs are going because those people then down the line are going to get busted. That's where the relationship is. It's a three sixty relationship for him. The other guys were in it for the money more than anything else. My dad really wasn't in it for the money because if you look at my life, dad's life back in those days, he didn't own a house. He didn't own an apartment. He slept at his brother's house. His whole life was mission, mission after mission after mission. And if this is the new mission, this is a new mission. But he would then turn around and help the police and the FBI busted down the line. But he must have had a fortune when he was working with Carlene and, and Rudy. You know what? There was no fortune. I mean, there was money. I'm not saying there wasn't any money. You know, like he paid for things and for for certain people and family and stuff like that. But the kingpin money that people think of just never existed because he wasn't doing it for just the money. And I think he was even more doing it for the thrill, for the excitement, because it was that was him. He there was. Once he went, once he had no more CIA contract killing to do, he wasn't going to go get a job somewhere and just work nine to five. It just he couldn't do it. He was put in witness protection in Brooklyn, and he lasted I think thirty days before he called uh, his friend in the police department, um, Lieutenant Diaz, and told him, "I can't stay here. I'm leaving. I'm coming back to Miami," which ended up costing him his life. He is he is killed in what's described as a dispute yeah. in a bar, but you think that was a setup? Oh, it's a it's a hundred percent bullshit. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, maybe a month before that, his close friend disappears on a fishing trip. Um, the other members had already been killed. Villa, he, Ver- Villa Verde, right? Was yeah, Villa Verde, Villanueva, Villa Verde, yeah. And um, he disappeared on a boating trip. That was one of his best friends, so he knew that things were coming to a head at that point. I I was reading earlier on it, and uh, he had actually spoken to uh, Jerry Sanford about it. He approached him a week before his death and told him that when he dies, 
it won't be one of these disappeared, can't find them, something blew up. It'll be in a place where people are so that it's seen, heard, and witnessed. He, who would yeah, have ordered it? Who would have ordered it? Oh, it was uh, it was the people that were in the TikToks, or it was CIA. So the when you say the TikToks, that was the what they called the operation that uh, Monkey uh, uh, when he when he flipped on the uh, the on Table the Fourteen gang, right? Right on the on those guys. One of those guys was was had to put a contract out on the owner of uh, Rogers on the Green, Roger Novo, had who he was fighting with at the bar that night. And that's where he was killed, right? At the the restaurant? So he's at this bar. He's brought there by the wife of one of his mortal enemies. So nobody even knows why he would go to this bar in the first place. So we don't know how they lured him there because that's the last place he would really want to go. But he ends up there. And my dad would never end up somewhere. He was too smart. For He's too smart. He would, so do you think yeah. this was, you know how like you hear suicide by cop? Is this suicide by mobster? Because like, he was getting very paranoid toward the end. He was Correct. he was losing it. I mean, he was losing his grip. Um, a part of it was probably the Coke, right? And and uh, I guess he was drinking a lot. He was drinking. He was a pro drinker. But he had the PTSD and he, I think they've even accounted when he would go to family, he would sit with his back to the kitchen wall so that yeah, he, he never s- everywhere he went he did that everywhere right but i i uh i've discussed that that was the first point i brought up when i went to the book signing when robin's book came out was i asked the question and i asked it of lieutenant diaz his friend do you think he was just tired of it do you think he said i'm gonna end it tonight it's either yeah. me or him and he said i'm going and let's see what happens. And he didn't realize it was a setup because the person he went to confront is not the person who shoots him. He ends up getting shot from the other side of the bar in the back of the head. His gun is in his ankle holster, never pulled it. So I, that, that self-defense thing is a joke because you don't see a gun pulled. <laughs> how are you allowed to shoot somebody else? And how do you know he's got a gun on his holster in his ankle? What did the detective say? They said it was self-defense that he had bent over to reach for his gun and the other guy shot him because he had been arguing with the guy in front of him. But nobody could explain how come he didn't get his gun pulled. How would you know there's a gun? He could have been bent over to tie his shoe. But so D- Diaz believed that too? It. Diaz believed that too? I, Diaz would not say what he believes. Really? He thinks He didn't tell me if he thought I was right or if it was just a bar fight. But his my police department is the one that uh, Metro Day Police Department is the one that investigated and closed the case. So I find it difficult that he would say anything in contrary to what his department would have uh, put out there. But there is no way that that night ends up at that place and he gets shot from across the room from behind, never having pulled a weapon. That's that does. That's not my dad. So there's no doubt. What um, when you look back, this this been kind of a, a a resurgence in interest in this time period. The movie Cocaine Cowboys comes out. Right. Uh, I think there was a sequel also to it. Um, that that deal mostly with the Colombians, though. I think right. Uh, that yeah, that's that's that exactly. That's like the Dadeland shooting that you were right, talking. About. That's right. all Colombian related. And my dad really didn't have anything to do with Colombian related. Like I said, he was dealing with Bolivia and that side through Venezuela when they were doing the drug smuggling. But but people start people start to get interested in these kind of stories again. So when do you find out Robin is writing a book that your father's going to be prominently featured in? Crazy story. I'm on Twitter and I'm just scrolling through my timeline and we actually end up having a mutual friend in Miami, but we didn't know it. So my friend retweets Robin's books coming out and just retweets it. Not at me. Right. And it happens that I'm scrolling through the timeline and I see a picture of my father. So I sent Robin a message. Hey, that's my dad. He freaks out. He calls me and we start talking about it. And, and, uh, that's how I found out about the book. And I asked him, who have you spoken to? He goes, your cousins. Well, I hadn't seen my cousins since my dad died. After my dad gets killed, we disperse. The whole family just disperses. My brother moves away. I move to a different place. 
and we don't ever talk to each other again. And that's how I found my cousins again. And then since then, we've rekindled the family and we're, we're great friends and together again. So not even by telephone or anything, Nothing. you guys are not talking at all. They didn't know where any of us were. Wow. So that's how I found out about the book. And then I found my family that way also. That's kind of shitty, though, uh, you know, to, that, you know, you, you lose the family, like you lose your yeah. dad and, yeah. and now you lose it. And you said mom's out of the country now. Yeah, mom's moved on and she's remarried and lives in Colombia now. And but I've, I've had a great experience rekindling with with my with that. I saw my aunt, my brother's sister, who's very old now, but she still has it in her. And I went to visit her and she remembered me. So it was an amazing experience to go back and rekindle the family connections. And she told me a quick story about how he escaped from Cuba. He said she said they had arrested him. They, they ran him over with a car and they arrested him. And while he was being held, he stole the gun from the guard, shot the guard, got out. And my sister was at the door of the hospital trying to get in. They wouldn't let her in. And then he drove by in a car out front with his friends, said, go home. I'm fine. And drove away. So it's amazing. Um, so you, you know, your mom's in Colombia. It's another unstable place. You, you got to get her, get her, you know, get her on the Virgin Islands or something where she can relax. Yeah, her husband, her new husband is from Colombia. That's his home. So that's why they live there. Um, so Scarface comes out mm -hmm. in 83. Yeah. And um, perhaps the Babylon Club is a facsimile of the Mutiny Club. Right. Without a doubt. Without so a doubt. naturally, the characters that are in Scarface, Cuban exiles, um, Oliver Stone, who wrote the screenplay, is seen at the Mutiny Club often, right? With Correct. maybe the producer as well? Yes. So, They're all scouting it. They want to see how it looks and how the people look in it so they can copy it. But the people, too. Are, the people do we too. have people not based on this crew of people from the mutiny in this movie there's the, the there, there are because you're sticking the Marielle people in with the other ones which wasn't the case in 80 because that really you know so you don't really have there's none of those people in that table 14 are from the Marielle boat lift so where scarface supposedly right. is from the Marielle boat lift so there's a little bit of flexing going on there in characters and years but the the core, yes, it's the table fourteen people and all the people in that bar. If we had to say, if we had to, gun to our head, that somebody might have been based on Monkey, who might it have been from the movie? Well, I know for a fact you can tell by the look that one of them is Carlos Casal because Frank Loja looks like Carlos Casal. Yes, he does. Dead drinker. The F. Murray Abraham, am I, am I correct on the name there? Yeah, that's your dad. The Abraham <laughs> character is my dad <laughs> a little bit. You know, a lot, I would say. Not as much, but a lot. But, yeah, there, there, there's no doubt he had to come up with – there's no way you can come up with those characters like that that match so well without having learned about that story, those in, stories. In his, um, in his performance also or just the look? I think the look and a little bit of the performance because he was trying to make sure that all sides realized what was going on. He would tell one side, yeah, and then tell the other guy, dude, you're going to get yourself killed. You're doing the wrong thing. Because that was like my dad. My dad always tried to make sure that the people that were on his side knew what they were doing. You're, you're getting yourself in a bad situation, and I'm warning you now. And whether you heed the warning or not, it's going to be on you later on. And then like in the movie, he doesn't heed the warning and he, Scarface gets killed. So. So listen, Monkey Jr., are you, are you living a calm, civilized life? Are you going to be bombing anything this week? <laughs> or, or what's going on with you, bro? Yeah, no, no. Very calm, civilized life. I live in Michigan in a one traffic-like town. I've got two beautiful children that are grown and my wife is beautiful. I met my wife in Miami in 87 and left. And we've been here for a while, and I got no complaints now. I'm too young, but those Miami women in the 80s, my God, they must have been so hot. <laughs> That's why I married a woman from Michigan. 
The, the <laughs> they were hot, but they wanted to run your life. <laughs> be worth it. I know. Sometimes I guess you got to take it. Um, so when people find out like now, like people you work with oh. and stuff, are they like, yo, that's your dad? Dude, when the book came out and I sent it to people, I told people to buy it and they read it. Everybody kept calling me. Hey, do you know all those things I said about you, man? I take them all back. My God. Yeah. They're all, they're all now they're all a little nervous. <laughs> so I keep it going on the down low. I'm like, don't remember. Don't mess with me. I go home. It's just like high school all over again, brother. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Now I'm back on top. Yeah. Don't mess with me. No, but it's my brother was the one who was scared. I, I talked to my brother like six years ago after a long time. And I had to tell him, nobody is looking for you. He thought that he was still in trouble because of what my father had done, that somebody would end up killing him or his family. That's it, how. Older or younger brother? He's older. Yeah, he's older. But he's like, he couldn't believe it. I said, come out. I've, I'm on Facebook. It's okay. You can come out of the hiding. And uh, yeah, but he was still nervous about it, you know, this many years later. So listen, don't tell your kids. They don't have to know what grandpa. Oh, my son found out. And now like he's, you know how kids, boys are. My son found out and now his grandpa's his hero. (laughs) All right. Fascinating. Another instance where I'm hopefully going to get the uh you know what it's worked out a lot better i, I was gonna I was gonna start ripping into you but you know what I, I get a lot of positive feedback when i go off the wrestling track a little bit bring folks and listen the pitch of this show yeah the word kayfabe comes from wrestling there's no doubt and it's in the category description for itunes and the other and spotify and the other deals but this is people with stories you're not supposed to hear that's the hook here yeah some of them are going to have worn tights um, some of them are going to have to have made bombs. Uh, but this is Twitter time. I told you I'd answer what's on your mind. Jimmy McGee, what caused you to stop making original productions? Was it WWE Network? That's a hard question. It's a long answer. I'll give you the long and short of it. The market did change. WWE Network did continue Netflix's evil promise that endless content should only cost under $10 a month which if you're a company that size, that is fine. You can operate if you have a million subscribers a month, and they both have more than that, and they're paying $9 a month. That's $9 million a month for you to produce your material, okay? When you're a boutique operation, a niche of a niche, which we are, you need a lot of subscribers to make that price point work. Simply put, it's not going to work okay so i know all of you out there who have been educated by the netflix business model if you've read my books then you already know this but it doesn't apply to a company that doesn't have a million subscribers or a base of millions of people there's a very close-knit die-hard bloodthirsty few thousand people on the internet that follow wrestling from a business level called the internet wrestling community i guess is the moniker that's been put on it but very passionate very diehard very tough to please and i'm thrilled to say we'd please them for 12 years but the business model that other companies put out uh, started to destroy it um there are morons putting stuff for free on youtube enjoying the you know 125 dollars that google sends you every month from running ads in the middle of your videos, but uh, even that model is going to start to change a little and they'll be out of business, I guess. It's just, I, I've watched for 12 years running this company. I have watched, like garden weeds, things sprout up, they get some attention, eventually they're stomped by the world or just cut down by the realities of business. So the freebies will go eventually, or, or I listen, or they will continue to just do this as a hobby. They want to hang out with wrestlers, so uh, they do this. They run around, fly around, and they pay the wrestlers, and they they film the stuff, and uh, and you know they don't nearly get the return, but it's worth it to them to satisfy this uh, this hobby they've got. Eventually, they'll meet a girlfriend or a wife, and that'll stop. Uh, let's move on. Salvatore Martone, our old friend. 
Why haven't we had a good serial killer arrest in what seems like forever? It's not like these particular this particular human behavior has vanished from the earth. They're still out there. Also, Mark Harmon will always be Ted Bundy in my eyes. Um, yes, uh, Mark Harmon was a good Ted Bundy. I think what's happened is the the practice of serial murder uh, is... Yes, there are still we, – we, we know there are still serial killers operating. We've got unsolved similar murders around. As of this recording, there was a, a pretty good documentary about, a series about the ones in uh, Long Island, I think. Uh, some prostitutes uh, that were found out on near Gilgo Beach, Long Island. I think they were calling the LISK, LISK, the Long Island serial killer. Yeah, so we know what's going on. But listen, this day and age, everyone's got a cell phone. There are cameras almost everywhere. Uh, street traffic cameras, light pole cameras. Everything's being caught on video. It's much harder to get away with anything. Jaywalking, forget about, you know, uh, taking human lives and uh, disemboweling them and tossing them somewhere. It's hard to get away with shit in this uh, technological day and age. You're being tracked with your cell phone. Even as I write thrillers, I'm always painted into a corner by the traps that are out in society. You've got to think like a criminal when you're writing about crime, right? Because you've got to have someone get away with it for a while, and then you got to think like the detective and, and nail them in the end. So... I'm I'm constantly considering this, but I think that's the that's the answer, Salvatore. They're out there, but you know people are getting nabbed after one or two of these, and they don't get to put together a body of work like a Green River Killer who you know gets to thirty or forty. Um, I think that day and age is over. Fortunately, Salvatore also also asked me word association Sea Caucus, Sea Caucus, New Jersey. There's nothing really going on out there. Uh, my daughter goes to high school there, but what Sea Caucus means to me is it was the Channel Nine Studios. Okay, uh, I grew up about a 15 minute ride east from Sea Caucus. You know, on the Hudson River right across from Manhattan, but if you drove on Route 3 West, you hit Sea Caucus, and you hit the Channel 9 WOR-TV studios. What emanated from WOR-TV studios when I was a young, media-interested uh, teen and preteen that I would go see? Well, first of all, the uh, Jerry Lewis Muscular Dystrophy Telethon, the New York portion, is or was shot at uh, Channel 9, so one night, I don't know what possessed anyone, but I remember me, my stepfather, my mother, and younger brother uh, online at about 10 or 11 o'clock at night to go into the muscular dystrophy telethon and watch Tony Orlando and the other top stars of the day, I say dripping with sarcasm, uh, as they uh, shilled for money for uh, for the telethon. So that I went to that. Uh, there was a show called People Are Talking. It was a uh, it was a morning talk magazine show with a live audience. I think Richard Bay was the host before he went on to have like this wild Richard Bay show when that started to become popular, like of the uh, Jerry Springer Howard Stern model. But he was the uh, the buttoned up, collared, uh, sweater wearing Richard Bay. Um, at this time, and he had a show called People Are Talking. And I had a friend uh, who we were trying to get a show as f- like 14. We were like 14, and we got permission to use the local cable studio here. So we were trying to get a talk show going. And so to learn a little bit, we would go and watch. We'd cut school and, and go watch live tapings of People Are Talking. And we befriended one of the producers and asking him questions about our show and whatever. Yeah, that's what I did. That was the product of misspent youth, uh, I guess. And Sea uh, Caucus was also the Morton Downey Jr. show in the same studios as people are talking. But to, down the hall was Morton Downey, and uh, I was actually there. And I asked a question. If any of you find it, I would love to see it. I was 16, maybe. I was in high school and uh, went to a taping. And I got up and I asked a question of the uh, the guest. It was about, I don't remember what it was about. I think it was about a child molester or something like that. And he was like in disguise on the stage. And, you know, we all got up and hurled, you know, 
insults and questions at him, as happened on the Morton Downey show. So I got to be on the Morton Downey Jr. show. I actually met him, too, in Sea Caucus at the Mill Creek Mall, which does not exist anymore. It's now been turned into uh, like a strip mall, but it was like an indoor mall. And he was doing a signing of his book. Uh, and I went there and met him. So uh, that's that. Uh, Gil Boldberg asks me, if money wasn't an issue, what is something, whether it be personal or professional, that you would like to do at this stage of your life? Um you know, I'm tired of the gatekeepers, so I'd like to produce uh, some films and uh, get back to what the fuck I wanted to do with my life. Christ, as I sit here talking to you guys again, yet again, a lot of good questions. Ted Cunterblast, when was the last time you had to fight? Dude, I have to fight all the time. When you are an independent media producer, you are fighting all the time. I'm not the type that tends to keep my mouth shut. So I guess I'm a bit of a fighter. I'm the one who will speak out about an injustice. Not a big injustice. I'm I'm not carrying a sign. But, you know, something goes on at my daughter's school. I'm not ignorant, but I'm going to intelligently dress you down. Um... So I have to fight all the time. IV, will you ever show the Jake Roberts interview on Patreon? I know there isn't much of it, but it would be interesting to see what transpired. Um, that's a possibility. I wouldn't do it here. It, um, but uh, perhaps uh, maybe uh, kayfabe commentaries when we get rolling again. We'll have a uh, have a page, page of some stuff. Um. There was a question earlier, which I didn't answer in its completeness, I realize about. The market did have a lot to do with kayfabe commentaries. And also within the band here, um, there's some stuff we're, we're cleaning up and and, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to get back together um, and get back out there. Um, some health issues uh, in the band here. And, uh, you know, kayfabe commentaries is more than just me. And uh, so when everybody can uh, contribute, um, because that's the music you want to hear. Uh, we will do that again. Let's see. Ralph Ramirez, uh, will you be adding? Ex- oh, that's very funny. I I just read his. Uh, will you be adding exclusive content for your Patreon members? Uh, okay, so Ivy and Ralph Ramirez asked the same question. Uh, when doing the Breaking Kayfabe series, did you consider doing one with Jamie Dundee? Yeah, I'd work with Jamie again. I guess it's been a long enough time. I need a, I, I need a, uh, I need a man to kiss me again. I guess. Um, listen, a lot of great questions. I'll grab the rest of these next time. But we've run out of time. I, what am I going to sit here for two hours? What am I? One of those podcasts? What am I? One of these people? We're going to cover Raw. I'm going to recap Raw this week on Raw. I'm going to do that. What, I'm going to drag out another uh, insignificant wrestler from the 60s, talk about the armbar? I'm not going to do that. When it's over, it's goddamn over, folks. Need I remind you that this has been a production of Sean Oliver Media. Music by the great Kevin McLeod. Licensed through a Creative Commons license. And listen, you want to be a patron, you can help produce this show at patreon.com slash gayfaithpodcast. All right, go do something with your fucking week.